join us as we sing our praises to God together. Oh, excuse me. First, we have a missions moment. I'm so sorry. Please be seated once again. To her, so we're just switching roles today. We do have a, a moment this morning I wanted to share with you. I'm happy to introduce you to Jeannie Little in case you did not know her. She and her husband Don have been a part of our church for the last six or seven years and uh, been involved here. And uh, a few years ago, Jeannie uh, felt a real calling in her heart about the, the ministry of spiritual direction. And uh, she's going to share a little bit about that. There's an insert in your bulletin that gives you some more detailed information. Uh, it's, it's one of those ministries that's sort of behind the scenes. But I, I find that most of the time when God's at work in our lives, it's often behind the scenes. And so... Uh, this is one of those, those places where that happens. And Jeannie's been doing spiritual direction, but we are pleased and, and her desire is to come under the leadership of the church and we are very happy to do that. And so we wanted to give her a chance to just talk with you a little bit about uh, what she does with spiritual direction, what it is and how it's been a part of her life. And then we wanted to take a moment and to pray for her. And uh, so Jeannie, come share with us. Well, I'm grateful to have this opportunity to, to share with you about Spiritual Direction, a ministry that in many ways has changed my life. Um, although I believe God was preparing me for this ministry, it wasn't until about six years ago that I heard about Spiritual Direction. Almost immediately, I knew that I was to pursue training to become a Spiritual Director. It, it just fit in so many ways with me. But the lovely thing about it, the lovely way that is so God, was that I thought that I was going to pursue this training to learn some techniques and information when really God's plan was, first plan, was to draw me into a deeper love relationship with him and also to heal and free me from things that just felt like they were part of me. They'd been with me for so long. This has been a large part of my journey for the past six years. But what is spiritual direction? Let me start by telling you what it isn't. I am not a counselor, not a life coach, not a, an accountability partner or a prayer partner. Um, and spiritual direction is not even very directive. Uh, spiritual direction is a form of soul care, and I think of myself as more a companion on the journey. We are all on a journey with God. Whether we started knowing him personally as children or later in life, we are learning and growing and doing the best we can on this journey. Engaging scripture, praying, being part of a church community, trying to follow and serve God in the world, but at the same time, we are immersed in all our individual life experiences. Being born into a particular family, making friends, being a college student, working, etc. I doubt I have to spend time convincing you that although we may have earnestly surrendered our lives to God, perhaps many times, our life and our relationship with him can sometimes feel 
like a bit of a tangled mess. The busyness of life, its stresses, challenges, and decisions added to the hurts and disappointments of life can have us sometimes wonder, if we're honest, where is God in the midst of all of this? Spiritual direction is based on the conviction that God can be found in all of our life experiences. In fact, he's waiting to be noticed there. Just as Jesus stopped by the well and met a woman who had had many husbands and likely felt that her life was a mess and offered her living water, offered her really himself, so Jesus wants to come into our individual messy stories and say, I can meet you there. I can offer you water, too. In spiritual direction, I am honored when individuals share their story with me. I give them a safe place to voice their confusion and struggles and help them notice where God might be. It is traditional to light a candle at the beginning of each session to represent Christ's presence in the conversation. Sometimes getting the question and the struggle out and just holding it to the light of Christ's presence can be deeply healing. I don't, though, want to give you the impression that spiritual direction is problem-centered, much like counseling is, perhaps. For me, spiritual direction functions as regular soul care, much like the other spiritual direction disciplines of prayer and, and scripture meditation and silence. Having someone who regularly draws me to examine my life and ask, where is God in my life, enables me to live my relationships and my life with God more reflectively rather than feeling that life is like being on a fast-moving train. Building trust with a spiritual director who listens, asks me questions, and notices things I may not notice has helped me grow in what Scripture calls abiding in Christ, that sense that I am a deeply loved child of God. There's much more I could say about spiritual direction, but on a practical level, I meet typically with men or women once a month, though with students I meet usually every two weeks. I find students live life a little more intensely. Um, If you're interested, I would love to sit with you and hear your story. I'm going to spend a moment uh, praying for Jeannie, and if you would like to... I'm going to have her kneel here. If you'd like to uh, come and lay hands on her as a means of support and encouragement, I invite you to come now and uh, we'll spend a moment praying. Gracious Father, we thank you that you have placed this burden, this calling on uh, Jeannie's heart. 
Thank you so much that uh, she has responded to you and that uh, there are opportunities for her to learn and to understand and now to pass along that knowledge and understanding to others. We pray, Lord, that, that your blessing will rest upon her and her own spiritual journey and her, her own uh, connection to a spiritual director. And also as she, as she takes this position, we pray, Father, that you will help her to be your hands and your feet and your eyes and your ears to people who uh, sense that this is, would be helpful to their walk with you. Pray, Father, that you would give to Jeannie sensitivity to your spirit and awareness of your spirit at work. And we pray, Father, that you will help her to see that you are indeed using her in powerful ways. Father, we, we ask for your blessing upon this ministry. May it be a, a means you use to change lives through your Holy Spirit. And we pray all of this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Please stand and join us as we continue in worship together. In my wrestling, in my doubts, in my failures, you won't walk out.
Hallelujah, Lord. For you have overcome the grave and set us free from the chains of sin. You call us beyond ourselves to live not in fear and doubt, but in your glorious hope. Free our minds and unbind our hearts that we might live in the light of your glory and grace. It's in your most holy name that we pray.
You may be seated. Today's scripture reading comes from Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died, has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. One thing I want to mention to you uh, next Sunday uh, is the time change. The saving time begins. So you want to make sure that you set your clocks ahead. We all get a, one less hour of sleep, unfortunately, next weekend. Uh, and also, uh, I know a lot of you won't be here at Easter, but uh, one of the traditions we have for a long time, and it's sort of connecting to the history of the church, is we, in our early service on Easter, one of the things we do is baptism. And if you are going to be here and you're interested in being baptized, uh, let me know. And we'll be having a class for those who are going to be baptized in the next coming weeks. Uh, so if you're interested in that, just let me know. Send me an email or you can talk to me after church today and I'll get you on the list. Let's take a moment and uh, stand and let's share, let's greet one another. Uh, say hi to some folks that you either know or don't know. Introduce yourself.
Dennis Kinlaw, who's one of my spiritual heroes, once said, Grace is a promise, not a payoff. Think about that for a second. Grace is a promise, not a payoff. I think we spend most of our lives trying to understand that. Because there's something in us that wants to believe God is gracious to us because we've done something to deserve it. We have done something spectacular. We've been especially spiritual. We have been especially good. We are reading our Bible more than anybody else. We're praying longer than anybody we know. Whatever the case may be, something about us has triggered God's grace. But what scripture tells us from beginning to end is that God is gracious and merciful to us. God pours out grace upon us, not because we deserve it, but actually quite the opposite. And so Paul writes in Romans 5, as we talked last week, while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, rejecting God, betraying God, while we turned our backs on God, hating God, while we were enemies of God... Right in the middle of that, Christ died for us. And that's grace. We don't deserve it. But God is merciful and gracious. And, and what we wrestle with is trying to come to grips with that. The, the question really isn't, does God bestow grace? The question is, what do we do about it? How do we respond to it? One of the most natural responses to Any kind of kindness that people give us in our human nature is, quite frankly, to take advantage of it. I mean, people are nice. People are good. We keep pressing for more goodness, more niceness from them. People who who give of their time and energy to help us, they're the people we keep going back to when we need more time and energy and help. And and that's really, I think, part of what the people of Rome are struggling with. Paul has said to them, God is so gracious to you. He is, is, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And their response is, that's awesome. So when we sin, Christ forgives us. So why should we worry about not sinning? I mean, if if Christ is going to forgive us anyway, just do what we want. And then we'll ask for forgiveness. And I can almost see Paul... Saying, whoa, time out. Hang on. You're missing the point. And and at the heart of that mindset, at the heart of that idea is, sin is harmless. What we do has no long-lasting consequences. There's nothing really harmful about sin other than it's something God said we're not supposed to do. And Paul says, no, that's not the case at all. And if we're honest, we know sin is not harmless. Sin is destructive. It destroys everything about us. It eats away at our self-worth. It eats away at at our connection to God. It eats away at our relationships. It it eats away at, at what we're able to do in our peace of mind. It just continues to destroy us because that's the purpose of the evil one, to destroy us. And that's why you think of, well, think of the... Last time you felt regret over something you did or said. I mean, why, why do you feel that regret? It's, it's because you realize, I shouldn't have done that. And I'm watching how what I said or what I did has fractured this relationship. Has, has hurt my reputation. 
has cut off my ability to, to really sense God's presence with me. And I'm no longer feeling that peace. Sin is destructive, and I think we miss that. And because of that, we, we don't realize the, the way in which we, we view sin so often. You know, we, we so often think of this life, this world, I think that's part of the problem, how we view salvation. We think of it as just being about heaven and not about what God is doing now. The reality is Christ comes and dies on the cross so that we will know not just eternal life, but life with Christ now. And often that feels like when we, when we Paul talks about dying to sin, dying to ourselves, and, and that's what salvation is about. And often that feels like we're moving towards something less than something more. Because it's how we equate death. I mean, physical death, someone we love, someone we care about dies, even in the best of circumstances where their death brings relief from suffering and pain. And we know that as Christians, they're going to heaven. There is loss on our part. And we miss them and we ache for them. And there is a sense of something less. And so it's our natural response. And we get things confused around. We're a lot like the Israelites and who... They've been 400 years in slavery and they come out of Egyptian slavery. And they're in the wilderness and God has rescued them. And what do they do? They start grumbling and complaining because they don't like the food they're getting. And they say, we were better off as slaves in Egypt. Really? It's one of the, it's one of the most ludicrous things you read in the scriptures. They think being slaves of the Egyptians who are beating them and killing them and forcing them to all this terrible labor and controlling their lives, because they get to eat certain foods that they don't get to eat in the wilderness, this is a better life than being in the wilderness with God. It's, it's a lot like the stories you read of people who have spent so much time in prison that when they're released, they don't know what to do with themselves. They don't know how to live in, in that freedom and Sometimes they commit crimes to go back to prison because it's comfortable and it's safe and and they understand it and they don't know how to exist outside of that. And we think, wow, that's, that's hard to understand. And yet, think about times we do that in our own lives. We set sin up as if it is something, if we give it up, we're losing something. There's a story in Isaiah 44. Isaiah says to the people of Israel, think about how, how stupid you're acting. You go out in the woods, you cut down a tree. And you cut the tree in half, and with half of it, you, you chop it into pieces and you use it for kindling to cook your food. And with the other half, you carve it into an image and you set it up on your, outside your house and you say, this is the God who rescues me. A piece of wood. The half of it is cooking your food. This is the God you worship. This is what you think is so awesome. And we think, when we think of it in those terms, it doesn't make any sense. And yet when we live our lives, it feels like we're giving up something. But the truth of the matter is, what we're giving up is enslavement. 
Because sin always enslaves us. We think we're controlling sin, but the reality is sin's controlling us. We think we're dragging around sin by the chain, but the truth is sin is dragging us around by the chain. And I know that's true because there are so many times in our lives when we think, I know I don't really want to do that, but I do it anyway. I know that's harmful, but I really want to do it anyway. Paul is telling us that Christ comes to set us free from the chains of sin. Christ comes to set us free from from sin that is holding us and controlling us and, and is destroying our lives and everything about our lives. Jesus comes to break those chains and to set us free. And until we've had some glimpse of that freedom, we think what we're giving up is is losing. It's the struggle that the young man has when he comes to Jesus in Luke 18. He says, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, do the commandment, obey the commandments. He said, I've done all that. He says, all right, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And Luke says, he walks away filled with sadness because he has a lot of stuff. And in his mind, giving up the stuff is losing, even though it means following Jesus. And hanging on to the stuff is winning, even though at some point in his life or death, all the stuff is going to disappear. And we fall into that same trap. It's different. It's different stuff for all of us. But every one of us wrestles with the stuff in our lives. And Paul says, Christ has come to set you free from that. Because when you live for the stuff, you spend your whole life trying to protect the stuff. You spend your whole life trying to, to protect what we have, what we possess, what we love, what we want to do, what we don't want to do, how we feel secure and, and how we appease ourselves. And it's a lot of time and energy and effort to live like that. It's not freedom. Freedom is saying, I don't need that stuff. I can live without it. As long as I have Jesus. And so Paul says Jesus comes and he sets us free. We don't have to be chained to the stuff. We don't have to be chained to our sinful desires and attitudes and actions. We can be free. That doesn't mean that we will no longer struggle with it. We're human beings. We're always going to struggle with it. There's only one sinless person who ever lived. And it's not us. We are going to struggle, but there in the but what Paul is saying is we can be set free more and more all the time, and ultimately we will be completely set free when we arrive in heaven and the kingdom is brought in and all is put right. But until that day, we can live more and more in the freedom of Christ, and it is freedom to not live in a destructive way. It's, it's not freedom to do whatever we want. It's freedom to not have to do whatever we want. 
It's not freedom that, that says, I can just go and, and live any way I desire to live and hurt anyone I, would, I desire to li- hurt and God will forgive me. It's freedom to not have to hurt people. It's freedom without the chains of sin dragging us and pulling us and controlling us. Because it does. And it's not for just special people. Sometimes we think that. We've been told that even. That you have to get to this special place with Jesus before you can really be free. You, you, have, to, you have to know the secret code and then you can be free. But Paul seems to be implying here, it's just what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's what discipleship is about. It's continually giving up, surrendering sin that destroys us and taking on the life of Christ that heals us. It's it's really this sense of living a life of holiness. And often the word holiness, you know, sometimes a lot of bad connotations. For some of us, it means strictness and sternness and legalism. And it has been connected to that, but it shouldn't be. What we're really talking about when we talk about being holy is being like Jesus. And I don't see Jesus being stern or strict or legalistic at all. In fact, he comes to fight all that stuff. Jesus, what's the spirit of Jesus? Compassion, truth, love, grace, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, freedom. And that's what God wants for every single one of us. And we're all faced with the choice. It's before us every day, every moment. The choice is before us. Are we going to be controlled by sin and its destructive power, or are we going to be controlled by Christ? Are we going to present ourselves, give ourselves to Christ? That's how Paul words it in verse 13. He says, give yourselves completely to God. And that word, give yourself, it's sometimes translated offer yourself. It's trying to present yourself. It is the sense of placing ourselves at the disposal of someone else. And that can be a scary thing to do. I put myself at your disposal. If you want me to go here, I'll go here. If you want me to go there, I'll go there. Whatever I have is yours. That can shake the foundations of all the things that we make us feel secure. And that's what we remember. We're presenting ourselves, putting ourselves at the disposal of the one who, though we were yet sinners, went to the cross for us. God of grace, mercy, goodness. And that choice is continually before us. We don't have to be controlled by sin. The cross is more than living a life of mediocrity. Living a life of really of despair and failure with a little bit of grace thrown in. Now the cross, Jesus comes and dies so that we can live a life of fullness and joy and hope. And grace, even as we make our journey through the struggles of our sin. God wants to break the chains. We have to decide if we're going to let him or not. Because presenting ourselves to God is never passive. We don't just sit back and say, okay, Lord, here I am, do whatever you want with me. Kind of like that, maybe. But it's always active. It's always engagement, involvement, making decisions. A little over a year ago, I started having some pain in my right arm. 
I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what I'd done. But I was at the doctor, mentioned it to him. He did a few, had me do a few things. And he said, oh, you have a rotator cuff injury. It was confusing to me because I was pretty sure the rotator cuff was in the shoulder. And I discovered that rotator cuff injuries present pain, present themselves in your upper arm. And it presents a lot in your upper arm. I can tell you, it's painful. And I was having trouble just doing some everyday tasks. It was painful to put my arm into the into a shirt sleeve. It was painful to do anything, much of anything uh, athletic. And so he said, you need to go to physical therapy. So I went to physical therapy and uh, I, I will, the physical therapist will remain unnamed in order to protect the innocent. But I will, uh, I went to physical therapy and he started working on me and oh man, it was so painful what he was doing to me. But it was helping. And he said, here's your home exercises. You make sure you do these home exercises. And I, I started doing them and pretty well, most of the time, some of the time, I was doing those exercises. And, you know, because he was working on me and it was working well. I, you know, I'm thinking, why do I need to do the exercises? And so it was getting better and I was doing okay. And then it got worse. Because I kind of, not just some of the time doing the exercises, I wasn't doing them hardly at all. But he was working on me. I thought what I wanted was, I'll come in, I'll come in every day. You do the stuff on me, and then I can do whatever I want the rest of my time. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. So then I realized, and I injured it more, hurt it more. And it was so frustrating because last summer trying to play tennis, I'm, I, I'm having to serve underhand. Do you know how embarrassing that is to play tennis and you're serving underhand? Last summer, I, they asked me to throw out the first pitch at a Rapids game, and I didn't even get it to home plate. And that's the only reason I didn't get it to home plate. I just want you to know that. Otherwise, it would have been right in there. And, and, and more and more pain. I'll, I'll tell you, one of the most painful things I had to deal with was doing the benediction every Sunday. It just about, I about passed out some Sundays holding my arms like this. It hurt so bad. But I was not going to stop doing it because I love looking in your faces and <clears throat> pronouncing the benediction on you. So I went back to physical therapy. And he said, <clears throat> you've, you've actually gone downhill from where we were before. So we had to start all over again. And he said to me, as gently, he's a very gentle person. And he said, you really need to do these home exercises. Okay, I will do them. And I have. I learned my lesson. I'm doing my home exercises. But quite frankly, there are some mornings when I come in from walking and I walk in the house and there's 20 or 30 minutes of exercises that are looking me in the face. I do not want to do them. They're painful. They take a lot of time. I got better things to do with my time. I, I just don't feel like it. All the excuses that we make for not doing things that we should do. And then I remember what it was like when I didn't do them. And I start doing them. And here's what I've learned. I had talk, some self-talk. You know, I'm thinking to myself, you're so stupid. What is wrong with you? You can either, you can either go through some pain, a little bit of pain every day, in order to get better. Or you can skip those painful things and just do whatever you want and end up getting worse. And I know, not just from theory, but from experience, the first one is better than the second one. And I think in a very similar way, God is saying to us every day, do you want to surrender today? 
or do what you want? Do you want to just go your own way or do you want, you want to give me that? Realizing that whatever decision we make is going to lead us down different paths. And what we have to understand is that in this decision-making process, we can either be controlled by sin, whose desire is to destroy us, or we can be controlled by Christ, who while we were yet sinners, went to the cross for us. Who do we want to serve? Holy Father, we want to be set free. But often we don't want to pay the price. And yet realistically, we're giving up all the things that are damaging us and destroying us in order to take on you who is giving life to us. May it be so for us today, Lord. We pray this through Christ. Amen. We're going to spend some time praying here a few moments this morning. And um, as we do that, if you would like to come and use the altar rail, perhaps to pray for someone else, perhaps to pray for yourself. Maybe there's something that... The Lord has put his finger on in your life that you need to relinquish to him, to give up because you want freedom. Please join, feel free to join me at the altar rails. We pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the promise that not only do you call us to pray, but you hear us when we pray and you answer our prayers in the way that you know is best. And so this morning we pray for those in need around us and among us, those who are grieving and those who are hurting, those who are in pain and trouble. We pray for Sherry Reynolds and her family, this time of grief and and death of her mother. We pray for all who are struggling with the reality of death and loss every day. We know that you're with them, with us. We pray you comfort every need, every aching heart, every burdened soul. We pray that you would heal all of our diseases through the grace and power of who you are. Give hope and courage and healing and strength. To all who are in need today, and we think especially of Bob Chaubert and Rich Reynolds, Calvin and Laurel Buecher, Warren Woolsey, Bill Getty, Phil Muker, Mike Raybuck, Jill Tyson, Bruce Brenneman, Everett, Micah Christensen, Linda Roth and Dick Gould, Crystal Blake, Emily Cricklar. Father, we pray for the ministries of this church, and we thank you for all of the prayer groups that meet. We pray that you will bless their times together. May they sense you with them and 
And they sent you at work as they pray. We thank you for the ministry of St. Patrick's Church in Belfast and Father Dennis as he leads them. Pour out your anointing upon this congregation. And may they continue to be a beacon of light in this world of darkness. We pray, Father, for the Rodrigos and their ministry in Sri Lanka. Help them as they lead a variety of churches and groups. And just pray for them. Bless their son, Daniel, a student here at the college. And that you would help him as he's a long ways from home. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in northern Nigeria. Increasing attacks. More than 4,000 Christians killed last year. Almost 200 churches attacked. Although we don't even know what to do with these figures. But they're real people and real lives. And we know that you love them and you're with them. And we pray that you will protect them. And give them courage and strength that can only come from you. Father, we continue to pray for the millions of refugees throughout the world. And for everyone who's involved in helping them, whatever the circumstances that may have precipitated their flight, whatever their religion, their race, their nationality, we know that you love them with an everlasting love. And we know that you desire your people to be agents of hope and healing and strength as a visible presence of your love. Bring an end to the threats that make leaving their homes necessary. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today. Be glorified in answering them in the way that you know is best. And we ask this all through Christ who has died for us. In your mercy and grace. Amen. to invite the ushers forward as we give back to God just a bit of all that he has lavished on us.
the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.